Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thank you so much for being with us. In this episode, the murder of Tyree Nichols is, in the words of someone more literate than myself, a blow upon a bruise. It also points to, in my humble opinion, an international crisis of policing. I'll explain what I mean. Those tanks we talked about not going to Ukraine last week are on their way from the West. What a difference a week makes. Why is big tech suddenly laying so many workers off? This, as the economy generally, is showing signs of life. So let's get started, shall we? The brutal murder of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols by Memphis police is attracting attention and protests around the nation. Body cam footage of his death can be seen on national television, and it is not pretty. Five officers have been charged with second-degree murder in his death. The unit they were part of, Scorpion, has been disbanded by the Memphis Police Department. That was minimally what the family of Tyree Nichols had asked for. I mentioned at the top of this episode the idea of a blow upon a bruise. I see Tyree Nichols' killing as one in an ever-increasing list of police-involved cases that goes back decades and has made some folks face some uncomfortable truths. All five of the officers charged in this case are black, as is the police chief of Memphis, who lobbied for changes in policing in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. There is one common word for all these deaths and other police misconduct in the United States, and in fact, worldwide. That word is vetting. Who decides who is qualified to be a police officer? This is a central question, especially when it comes to the black community. How do incidents involving black people, most unarmed, spiral from a traffic stop or a collar for selling loose cigarettes to someone being killed? Are we to take solace from the fact that some cops in more egregious situations are being criminally charged? My good friend Keith Warfield put it quite well. Black neighborhoods, black communities deserve just non-racist policing by officers, white or black, that don't stereotype black people. I also need to mention that many people, myself included, are friendly with officers who have retired from the NYPD without brutalizing anyone through 20, 25, in some cases, 30-year careers. Some are still working today. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, who I know personally, was a long-serving member of the New York Police Department and cares deeply about the safety of the 8 million people who live in the five boroughs. I might add that Mayor Adams was a co-founder of an organization called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care. That does not mean, by the way, that a rogue cop in New York City won't brutalize a citizen on Eric Adams' watch. And that's the frustrating part of all this. The police chief of Memphis didn't green light what these people did, or allegedly did, I should be forthright about that. He hadn't been convicted of a crime. But here are five black officers who are charged with cutting down crime in black neighborhoods. And an unarmed black guy ends up being not shot, but beaten to death on the streets of that city. I mentioned an international crisis of policing earlier. What do I mean by that? 
consider that a cop in England murdered a young woman walking on the streets of her own neighborhood after dark. Another cop on the London force called the Met Police has just admitted to 49 sex offenses against women, including at least 24 rapes. This is a cop we're talking about here. This is not some street thug. It's not Jack the Ripper. This is a person that had the cover of authority granted to them by whoever vetted them to be cops. That's true in Memphis. It's true in London. Politicians seem unable to change those aspects of police culture that tolerate such actions. It's not just limited to the West. Police are often called to put down, brutally in some cases, legitimate protests in nations across the globe. Whether in service of a political leader, a religion, a religious doctrine, or whatever, policing, simply put, is out of control in some places on this planet. Sad to say, I don't know what changes need to be made in vetting potential officers, but they need to be made. We invest a great deal of authority in police. We give them guns, the ability to detain and arrest their fellow citizens, and we require, in many cases, courage to fight crime beyond what we as ordinary citizens are capable of doing. Is it too much to ask that they treat us as human beings? Speaking of which, when are we going to start treating ourselves as human beings? There have now been 40, count them, 40 mass shootings across America, and that's just for the month of January. Three took place in California in the space of just over a week. Just over a week. That state, California, has relatively tough gun laws, leading to open the question of whether laws alone will stop this orgy of violence and death. Even more sadly, dozens of shootings take place across America that never receive national attention, like the New Year, uh, Lunar New Year shootings in Monterey Park, California, that left 11 people dead. The U.S. is increasingly being portrayed as an outlier regarding guns on the world stage. Outlier now, perhaps pariah sometime in the future. So far, this orgy of gun violence hasn't ruined the nation's reputation as a world power. However, that could be coming soon. Up next, why is big tech laying off so many people? And what does it mean for the rest of us? This is The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. Meta, they of course own Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are some of the biggest names in big tech. They put the big in big tech. After a hiring frenzy during the course of the pandemic, these companies and other tech firms have announced massive layoffs, some 200,000 since the start of last year. The so-called Big Four has laid off 51,000 people just in the past few weeks. 
While not necessarily big tech, Spotify has laid off 6,000 workers as recently as the other week. So what's causing an employment sector that not long ago was booming to suddenly slam on the brakes? Even firms like Meta, which saw a 52% drop in profits last year, made $4.4 billion. A recent article on the NPR, National Public Radio website, says the decline is due to companies anticipating a slackening of consumer demand through this year. In other words, they think people like you and me will be tightening our collective belts in the not too distant future if we're not doing so already. Of course, they also want to send a signal to their shareholders that they're being fiscally responsible. And yet, one has to ask, what about the people who are out of work, even if it's temporary? It seems the workers are the least of big tech's concern. Some may argue that tears should not be shed for relatively well-paid workers who are somewhat removed from the lives of everyday people. Now, that could well be mythology when it comes to big tech. I think a lot of people have the impression that the workers at big tech are all well-paid geeks who sit behind a computer screen all day, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not necessarily the case. Just ask some of the workers, for example, at Amazon who work in the warehouses and have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, allegedly. I would argue, no matter what you think, that the workers who are getting laid off are still people who have bills to pay, families to raise, and the like. But the article in NPR quotes an analyst who put it in cold-blooded terms. And these words are revealing, so I'm going to quote them directly here. Quote, at the end of the day, people are, to some extent, dispensable, whereas you cannot cut in you cannot cut, that is, in your R&D. That's research and development, which is apparently the holy grail of big tech. The other aspect is this. As consumer tastes and preferences and consumption change, big tech has to keep and keep up, as do the plethora of media companies that are trying to expand their reach as well. The ultimate irony is this. The tech sector is laying people off at the same time there are labor shortages in many other areas of the American economy. Funny though, the article quotes analysts who are remarkably sanguine about the actual impact of all these layoffs on the larger economy. In other words, they quote an analyst, and you know, analysts aren't doing this for free either. But they quote an analysis, but well, people are dispensable to some extent. Research and development is the important part for big tech. I would say big tech workers need to think about that and let it sink in. And what of the larger economy? Despite predictions, it's not as bad as expected, at least not last year. Some economists still say and those economists, analysts, you can put them all in a big pot and boil them. Some economists still say 2023 will be a tough year overall. Yes, inflation is down, but they say not far down enough. The battle over the debt ceiling 
still looms as a very, very big factor in the economy this year. Republicans, at least some of them, if not most, seem prepared to let the nation slip into default. What political point they're trying to make, I'm not sure they even know. Yet should no deal be reached, the other factors buffeting the economy will look like child's play. What stands between the nation and a recession? I got news for you. It's the consumer, just like in big tech. Trends change, preferences change. Those are consumer preferences. And the consumer, generally speaking, you and me, are the people who open their wallets and spend their money. It seems that products and services that were denied people during the pandemic, like restaurant meals and vacations, are keeping the economy buoyed for now. That could spell trouble for the Federal Reserve, however, since its job is to tamp down inflation. This seems to be the good news, bad news story of the U.S. economy through the pandemic. Are we reliving that again, at least economically? Let's hope it gets better to the benefit of all. And finally, we told you last week there was an impasse in cooperation among Western nations in sending sophisticated tanks to Ukraine. Well, the floodgates have been lifted. But does it mean Ukraine can win the war? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Just last week, we thought the West was split about providing the Ukraine with sophisticated tanks, specifically the Leopard 2 and the Abrams M1. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who controls the deployment of Leopards throughout Europe, has steadfastly refused to authorize deployment to the Ukrainian military. Apparently, President Joe Biden and key advisors were split about what to do. Biden himself contacted Scholz at first without success. Biden convinced tank use was key to keeping Russia at bay in Ukraine, kept trying. Once Biden committed to sending the Abrams, Schultz relented, that is, on the Leopards. A public spat was avoided. Yet the question we asked last week still looms. Will this additional firepower turn the tide of battle in favor of the Ukraine? Western military experts think the Russians will start a spring offensive to turn the tide of the war in their favor. Seems to me the new weapons can have the effect of neutralizing Putin's military, but they won't by themselves win the war, at least provide victory by Ukraine's definition. There's also the question of how fast Ukrainian troops can be trained to operate this new weaponry. Long odds? Maybe. It's good, however, that the country that's been invaded has the tools to fight back, at least in the short term. Let's hope that they do make a difference, the Leopards and the M1s. See, because if they don't, then you have the specter of politicians, particularly on the American right, who will say it no longer makes sense to throw good money after bad. 
and that the Ukrainian army cannot win this conflict with Russia on their terms. And then the right and others in America, let's, let's be fair, it's not just the right, but there are two options. You can pressure Ukraine to enter negotiations, or you can try and pressure the Russians to enter negotiations. Right now, there are none. And to be honest with you, there need to be. Why not get people around the table? And that does not mean, by the way, trying to get the Ukrainians to end this war on the West's terms. They have their own terms. Let their terms prevail in this situation. That means repatriating those areas, the Nest, the Donbass region, back to Ukraine. And, and this is an important thing because it doesn't always get talked about. The Ukrainians want the Russians to leave Crimea, which they took not the other day, not over the past year since the invasion started, but in 2014. Is Vladimir Putin in a position to do that politically in his own country? The answer may well be no. And as to people around the world, it's not just in the U.S., but in England, in Germany, in France, people who question Putin's sanity through all this, don't bother. None of you. None of the pundits who are talking this stuff are in fact psychiatrists, psychologists, or really have any knowledge whatsoever about what's going on in Putin's brain. We can say safely that this war is an imperialist action, imperialist action on the part of Russia. And for that reason and that reason alone, it needs to stop. It needs to be beaten back. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Tim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.